Hello and welcome to Statistically Interesting, the podcast where we interview analysts and data scientists to find out about the fascinating work that they do and how they got to where they are today. I'm your host, Jake Stein. I'm co-founder of RJ Metrics. You can find out more about me and find out about new episodes by following me on Twitter, at Jake Stein. All right. Today on the podcast, we have Ian Murray, lead data scientist at Twitch. Ian tells us about the difference between forward and reverse osmosis, what data science looks like at Twitch, and easy tricks for eliminating spam from one of the most popular websites in the world. And here's our conversation. I'm joined today by an extremely interesting guest. Uh, guest, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, thanks, Jake. Um, my name is Ian Murray. I am a lead data scientist at Twitch, uh, which is, if you don't know, one of the largest video streaming platforms, uh, fourth largest source of traffic in the United States, actually. Um, and I focus primarily on everything to do with social features and community uh, and all kinds of uh, interactive engagement on Twitch. Very cool. And so I think being the lead data scientist at a company like that, I think is an extremely interesting role. And Twitch is just an impressive, fascinating company. I'd imagine, though, that people outside of our world might not totally understand either what your role means or like what, what kind of a place Twitch is. So when you're at a dinner party or talking with some of your family members who might not be as plugged into the same universe as you, how do you describe to them what it is that you do? Yeah, so essentially, actually a lot of people don't necessarily know what Twitch is even. So um, the primary use case of Twitch, although it's expanding now, um, is live streaming of people playing video games, either in tournaments against other teams or individually as kind of uh, media personalities. And they play games and interact with their audience. Um, and on any given day, we'll have a quarter million people broadcasting on the site, not to mention millions more watching. Um, and so from a data perspective, uh, we're really interested in what content is engaging for users what social features we can introduce to uh, increase how well connected our community is. Ultimately, Twitch's real selling point is an incredibly strong gaming-centered community of people that have these shared interests and almost a shared language uh, and dialect that we use. Um, either in chat on Twitch and also outside of Twitch on Reddit or other uh, gaming-related forums. Oh, so is is part of your success criteria and the things that you monitor how much Twitch-related activity there is on non-Twitch properties? Um, in part, uh, certainly sentiment of interactions outside of Twitch and the perception of Twitch within the community is something that we are very receptive to and are always trying to uh, address the concerns of our community, especially uh, accessibility and uh, user friendliness. And the one of the big ones uh, that you're probably aware of is kind of reducing harassment and 
helping moderate uh, interactions that occur on and within the gaming community off Twitch even. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I imagine, uh, you know, is it a is it like a kind of a mixed approach to that? Because I assume that some of that can be identified algorithmically, both from, you know, the extreme example of harassment or just gradations in sentiment. Uh, but I imagine it needs some human involvement, either through users flagging things or do you have an abuse team or how do you handle that? Yeah. So each broadcaster, especially ones with a lot of uh, concurrent viewers, uh, typically has moderators that are in their channel and every staff member of Twitch, regardless of kind of what division you're in, is also a moderator. So if you happen to be watching a stream and you see some objectionable content, you can moderate it manually yourself. Um, we're providing backend tools for broadcasters to set you know, specific words that get blocked. Um, you can either block out the word or you can not show the message entirely if it contains something. Um, that you find objectionable. Oftentimes, uh, broadcasters will stipulate kind of what they think is acceptable to their community because each broadcaster and each set of viewers that's interested in, in that broadcaster has their own mental map of like what's offensive and what's not offensive. And over-regulating can be often as bad as not regulating or under-regulating because you essentially quell some of the personality of the community. Absolutely. And I imagine that would make it harder to do like a purely algorithmic approach to filtering and, and things like that. So is that something that's just out of scope for you guys or do you is that part of your toolkit as well? So we periodically come back to thinking about doing some more automated moderation. Uh, and we have been running some tests uh, of our own formulations, and then there are also some third parties. The problem with the third parties is that the, the, the dialect on Twitch is so different that you can't use any tool that's trained on data that's not Twitch chat. Um, it just will not understand what's going on. Um, so, We've been building in-house stuff, but mainly making it easier for broadcasters and their moderators to set some rules, but then manually moderate very easily. Got it. Very cool. Yeah, and it seems like there's a lot about Twitch just from its size and from you know the kind of content and the community that that you all have built. It's it's very you know singular on a number of dimensions, which is really cool. And I imagine it must present a bunch of interesting challenges and fun problems to work on. Uh, I'm curious, how did you how did you get to where you are today? What was your career path that, that led here? So I, like many data scientists in my generation, had an extremely circuitous career path. Um, I am traditionally trained as a material science applied physics person. I did undergrad at Cornell, master's and PhD at Northwestern uh, in material science and chemistry. Um, initially moved out to the Bay Area to work on a water desalinization, water purification startup uh, that didn't get enough funding. Clean tech kind of collapsed at the time. Um, 
And so I bounced around in biotech consulting. And one of the unique things about pharma is that they've been collecting data forever. Uh, and so they have tons of data on everything, demographics, patients, doctors. Um, and I really found a home in evaluating emerging therapies uh, and evaluating clinical trial design specifically uh, and talking to thought leaders to help companies decide which of these emerging therapies in a given treatment area are going to be the most successful if we want to acquire them. And so from there, I had started to gain experience with tools that are more statistics, but capable of generalizing to big data. And so I moved to a more tech-specific consulting firm called Trions, where I worked for companies like eBay, uh, Netgear, Cisco, um, on looking at all of their sales data and consumer feedback and helping them optimize their sales process through uh, some semantic uh, text analysis, but then also just kind of funnel analysis as we would tr traditionally call it in consumer electronics. And then after that, I went to Human, which uh, was a really, really interesting experience. I was there for three years. Uh, as a startup at seed stage, when I joined, I was the third employee um, we built it up to around 38 at peak. Um, I had a team of three data scientists that worked with me um, towards the end, and it just got acquired by Tinder uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, that had been in the works for a while, but it just became public. Uh, so there, I primarily focused on uh, understanding uh, how digital signals correspond to real-life relationships um, across a multitude of social networks and communication platforms. Uh, and so that was a really uh, amazing experience uh, and, and kind of catapulted me into uh, these really consumer product-focused uh, companies like Twitch. And what exactly, what was Human's product? Like what were they either selling or trying to get people to use? Yeah, so Human developed a few apps while I was there. The primary and initial one was called Human. And so it was a contextual contacts app and would ingest data from Facebook, LinkedIn, Gmail, Exchange, the contact history of your phone, uh, and basically construct a contextual social map of how you're related to different people. Either you have a weak friend relationship, like their acquaintance, or you have a strong friend relationship with somebody, you have a family member. These were all things we could detect. Uh, and so we built algorithms around, you know, what does it mean for this user that they were tagged in a photo with somebody, uh, or that they sent them an email or that they were CC'd on an email along with this person. Those all meant very different things uh, across the whole population, but then for each individual user. And so human was really 
an experiment in distributed social network analysis um, where we empowered algorithms on individual devices to kind of compute these various aggregate factors of social tie strength, as we would call it. And then we constructed a global graph uh, that allowed us to show you the strongest mutual connections between you and somebody that you just met um, or the best method to contact them. Or if you landed in a city and you had a setting that you enabled on human, it would alert other human users that, hey, I'm visiting because it would know that you don't live there and uh, you know you traveled a certain distance from your hometown, and so it would say, "Hey, Ian's visiting Denver. You should catch up." Um, and so it was, yeah, it was really useful. In part, uh, it got hampered by, and a lot of companies did this. Uh, LinkedIn and Facebook shut down their APIs or clamped down on them significantly, and. Uh, really restricted the richness of the data that we were able to ingest. Um, And so we pivoted to do a hyper-local chat, group chat. Uh, I would say it was a hyper-local ephemeral group chat client called Knock Knock. And what was unique about it is... uh, you would be in a place and you just tap twice on your phone. So we did a bunch of signals detection for that. Uh, you didn't have that have the app in the foreground and you could connect to people around you and it would create a group chat between the people that were active on the app in that particular place in that particular time. Um, and uh, one of, I think, there may be other people that have figured it out since then, but at the time we were the only company that was able to do Bluetooth beaconing cross-platform uh, with Android, uh, iOS, and uh, uh, Windows Phone, actually, which nobody used. But uh, so was the actual chat running over Bluetooth? Like, could you, if you didn't have cell service, you could still chat with people locally yeah so you, that's cool so there was an exchange of identity information that occurred over bluetooth and then there was a more standard chat system that was server synced but then it also if there was no connectivity you could do bluetooth data packet chat and so it's super useful for things like coachella you're out in the middle of nowhere no service but you can still create and have a group chat between people. That is really cool. And, and do you know is you know Tinder's plans for this? Are they going to keep the apps as standalone? Are they going to incorporate that functionality into Tinder? Or so my speculation, uh, which I think is as much as I can uh, say, is that Tinder is very interested in incorporating some of this functionality into either their core app or some spin-out Tinder-branded app um, for hyper-local features. Um, I'm also curious to, to dig in a little bit more about the, the I think you said it was a material science and, and water purification startup. Was that Z-Nano? Yeah, yeah, it's called Z-Nano. Um, effectively, 
uh, research out of NASA Ames Laboratory uh, in Mountain View um, had developed this relatively scalable, self-assembled membrane that had very small pores, uh, but very high water diffusion rates. Um, and so it was able to act as a membrane, what we would call a forward osmosis membrane, uh, where water could get through, but salt could not. Um, and we've seen additional innovation in this area since my since that time with that company. Uh, I think the industry leader is either Raytheon or Northrop Grumman. They did an interesting like porous graphene uh, solution to this uh, that is being used by the DoD or investigated for kind of actual like application for the military. And and theirs is graphene. What was the the actual material that Zenano was using? So Zenano was a self-assembled uh, organic uh, composite. So um, you essentially have these very thin lamellar sheets of these oriented organic molecules and the polarity was such that water uh, was able to navigate through these uh, bipolar regions uh, but salt uh, would be occluded from those regions Um, and so it was able to kind of wind its way through uh, to the other side of the membrane uh, but salt was not and like, would that just happen on its own, or uh, like, do you need to apply some sort of pressure or something like that to force the the water through to the other side? Yeah, so you can either apply a pressure or a salt concentration gradient. So one of the things that people uh, don't necessarily know is that a lot of these desalinization techniques are multi-stage. So you would have a forward osmosis membrane, water you wanted to treat on one side, and then a highly concentrated salt solution um, on the other side. Uh, And you would pull that intake water via that salt gradient, but then you would have a very pure salt solution because you would filter out a bunch of uh, other compounds and... uh, large kind of more problematic salts if that makes sense and then and then you use pressure to force it through a reverse osmosis membrane which is what people typically think of when they think of desalinization is high pressure on reverse osmosis membranes and by doing this dual stage process you increase the efficiency of the overall process and you uh, reduce the damage and replacement time needed for the reverse osmosis membranes, which are very expensive usually. Got it. And, and what, what, uh, what makes one a forward osmosis and the other a reverse osmosis membrane? It's just how you use them. Uh, technically, you could stick a reverse osmosis membrane uh, on the other side of this kind of dual stage. Uh, it would just be not optimized uh, like our membrane was to have high diffusivity uh, without pressure. Oh, okay. So so reverse and forward, they're more about whether the absence or the presence of pressure rather than the kind of the membrane? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
So that there's no pressure being exerted. It's the water is oh, wanting to flow okay. across to equalize the, the salt gradient Got it. that you're creating. That's super cool. Okay, yeah, I've, I've read on the side of bottled water for I don't know how long, you know, made with reverse osmosis and never know what it meant. So uh, very interesting. Yeah, and one of the interesting things was, like, this is another one of, like, you know, the NASA space program legacies. This is what they use to recover, uh, I'm going to air quotes, wastewater <laughs> on the space station because there's no water in space. Yeah. So, like, every amount that you can extract and purify is important. Uh, and so the fact that I was working on this in 2011, and and that's a legacy of the 1960s and 70s space program is just mind blowing that it's still impacting and cutting edge research. That is extremely cool. And do you ever see the movie Waterworld? Yeah, yeah. So ba- that in the beginning, that's basically, that was their version of cutting edge uh, mm-hmm. osmosis technology where the guy peed in the machine. Yeah, which you can do actually. Really? Wow. Yeah. Did did you? I have not okay. done it. No. <laughs> I knew what the follow-up yeah. question was. <laughs> I couldn't not ask that. I couldn't, uh, and in no self-respecting interviewer could avoid that question. Um, very cool. Thank you for explaining that to me. Um, so uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, in in the kind of work you do now, and and I guess you know, at human and other, and other roles too. Uh, I, I know one thing that we find is that sometimes there's you know uh, an analysis that takes a huge amount of effort uh, and doesn't really pay off because you know you uh, it didn't the, the data just didn't turn out the way that you were hoping or vice versa that it's um, you know, it, it's a very straightforward analysis. Doesn't require you know any sort of advanced statistical or, or quantitative tools, uh, but it turns out to be really valuable. I'm curious. Can you think of an example where uh, you had something with that kind of huge, or, or a member of your team had some kind of you know huge bang for the buck, where you got a tremendous value to the organization, whether it's in terms of money or engagement or however however you measure success and value for something that was relatively straightforward to do the analysis? Yeah. Um, one of the interesting examples is, uh, and I'll have to explain a little bit about Twitch. So Twitch has chat, which is kind of a group uh, engagement of anybody that's watching a, a particular streamer can chat alongside. Uh, but you can also direct message, and we call those direct messages whispers. Um, and so we launched whispers maybe about a year ago now and didn't have much of a problem with spammers or uh, abusive content, but uh, a a few months ago, just saw this huge spike in uh, spam, like promotional spam, uh, being sent via this whispers method. Um, And that's actually like really uh, a disrupting thing for users because whispers pop up their own little dialogue box. and so we were wanting to take very swift action against this. Um, and, you know, if you pose this question to data scientists, a lot of them will say, oh, well, you do some uh, latent semantic analysis and uh, TF IDF on the 
content of spam messages versus non-spam messages, and you create a classifier and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is a valid approach, but is not something you can do in a day or two. Um, and so what we did is we went and looked at metadata around what, who these accounts were, what they were, what their behaviors were, how distinct were they from uh, well-behaved whisperers, and could we impose some simple heuristics against particular user accounts or IPs or ASNs that would uh, drastically reduce their ability to spam a lot of users. Um, and I won't say exactly what those limits were, uh, but we were able to reduce the likely spam messages as far as our, our post analysis uh, is concerned by 98%. Oh, wow. Uh, in two days. <laughs> And so it's it's literally just like, you know, I mean, spammers are sending a lot of messages to a lot of people they've never talked to, and those people don't respond to them. And so how early can we detect that and shut them down? And uh, Twitch has this ethos where we make it really easy to create accounts, like, and we actually don't really force people to create accounts either. We have a philosophy that we want as many people to have as easy access to our community as possible. That also makes it an attractive target for spammers because they can generate a ton of accounts and do whatever. Um, but we, rather than compromising on that and requiring confirmation of email or some other verification steps, we said we can, we can look at their event history and behavior and say within a few hours of them creating an account whether or not they're a spammer and shut them down. Uh, and so that was like incredibly satisfying. I'm sure. Yeah, that that must be a great feel. I mean, 98% drop in spam in two days. That's uh, that's good. That pretty much any way you cut it, that's something to be proud of. Uh, I think the argument that on the other side that someone might make uh, is that uh, you know you, you might be kicking off a cat and mouse game and yeah. So we're going to start an arms race right. associated with this, um, and we've seen a little bit of test behavior. Uh, we keep an eye on them. But after we did that intervention, we started immediately working on that classifier, you know, approach. And we have a, actually a very good uh, system that's logging on production. It's not actually active on production yet. Um, but we're testing it and making sure that it's catching has like a low false positive rate and a reasonably low false negative rate. Uh, and putting in some special UI around uh, either we can drop messages altogether, we can display an additional warning to try and increase the report rate uh, of spam messages, like if we think there's moderate risk that it's spam. Got it. Got it. H how long ago was it that you first spotted the problem and did the, the two-day solution? 
Um, that is a good question. I want to say it was February. Uh, no, yeah, so it's like February 2nd. That was, It was just massive. Uh, I think on that day alone, uh, there were spam messages to a quarter million unique recipients uh, <laughs> on that day. And we were like, um, this is not continuing. So, yeah. And what, uh, just for a sense of scale, like how many people in total received messages that day to order of magnitude? Um, order of magnitude, uh, the total number of uh, legitimate recipients of messages uh, was around 150,000. Uh, the number of messages was closer to 1.6 million, but that's because you have multiple messages to the same account. But this was to uh, you know, a quarter million unique accounts uh, and often only one message to each of them, but uh, just a really absurdly massive number. And is there, I'm just kind of a connoisseur of internet scams. I really enjoy, you know, getting, you know, the, someone sending the frantic email to me saying, oh, you need to, it's urgent, you need to wire money to this address, you know, otherwise I, I can't get out. I just get a kick out of reading the, the techniques they use and things like that. Are, are there particular scams that are really common uh, on Twitch? Yeah, so, so it's less scams and malicious links, although those are higher priority for us. A lot of it is actually more game-specific promotional or channel-specific promotional, uh, where it's like, oh, like, watch this channel, it's awesome, or um, like, click this link for sweet accessories, you know. Uh, so it's not, it's not the worst kind uh but it's it's not the kind that would have a zero click-through rate either um because it is potentially relevant to the user that is seeing it it's just kind of like a guerrilla advertising mechanism uh and and it's annoying so uh it, we have less problems with outright scams and malicious links and more just like game game related uh, product promotion. Uh, and then I'm also curious about, um, I guess in some ways, the opposite of my original question. You know, what what has been something where you did need to, to pull out, you know, the, the bigger statistical guns or, or computer science guns uh, and you actually, you know, you were able to get something valuable but only after... Um, deploying some some higher level tools. Yeah, so I think our we've had a couple interesting cases with recommender systems where um, we employed relatively sophisticated collaborative filtering uh, to come up with what were very good recommendations based on what you had most recently watched. Um, but what we found was that where we were making those recommendations actually reduced the overall content consumed by that user. 
Um, and we like we struggled to kind of figure this out, but we were kind of redirecting people away from their primary content, kind of like distracting them, like, ooh, look at this shiny thing. They would go look at the shiny thing and then be like, nah, and then they would bounce from the site rather than staying on uh, the channel that they originally came to watch. Um, and so that was really interesting in that the better we were at recommending things, the worse our top line metrics became. Uh, it was really crazy. That is crazy. And so did you, uh, did you just pull out that recommender uh, entirely or, or had, uh, what, what's the state of that right now? Yeah. So we're relocating it, um, and trying to figure out the best way to use it. The, the intermediate solution is to only show those recommendations on channels that aren't live. So if I land on a broadcaster channel that isn't actually broadcasting, um, we can use that recommender system there because we're not, not taking away minutes watched from anything because they weren't watching anything. Um, but yeah, in terms of anything that's live, like we don't, we don't recommend that they go anywhere. Uh, <laughs> But, but stay on the channel that they're on. Huh, interesting. And, and do you think, because uh, I mean, you know, you, you, you said that, you know, the better you got at recommending, the less they watched. But that's, you know, given the success, you know, the, the, ver- the definition of better that you were using there. Do you think there, long term, there will be a place for different kinds of recommendations that, that uh, locating in the same spot would increase the amount of minutes watched? Or is that just not something that's valuable for your sort of product? Yeah, potentially. One thing that we're really interested in, and I I have partial, I've got temporary coverage over our new creative efforts um, because it, it kind of didn't have a home and I have uh, some affinity for arts. So I, uh, I took that on as part of my, my uh, organization. But... Uh, it may be that recommendations of orthogonal content um, will help cross-pollinate these new uh, content categories that we're trying to seed and ultimately result in more minutes watched because people come to the site for more diverse content uh, and for different reasons. And so they have a reason to come more often. Um, but that's like a longer term thing that you have to study because uh, you're looking at uh, week over week or month over month retention and growth in engagement uh, as opposed to that session, looking at an individual session. Got it. Interesting. And what are... Can you talk about the some of those what some of those orthogonal categories might be? Yeah, so creative encompasses uh, painting, digital graphic arts, uh, building things. We just launched the food channel that's been really successful. Uh, Game development, programming, actually, uh, which is interesting to watch. Uh, Music, so we have... Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Ultra Music Festival, 
in Miami, I believe. Um, but we are the live streaming partner of a lot of EDM events. Um, and so it's, it's basically usually somewhat gaming related or the people, the artists that are on the platform are familiar with the gaming community, which is why they know Twitch. Um, but we have a fairly large and growing partner base of exclusively creative streamers that do comic art and uh, digital graphics and uh, cosplay. Like, you know, they, they're designing outfits and, I mean, basically anything um, you could think of and it's actually really engaging. Like the the communities are a bit smaller than the gaming uh, chat rooms and and broadcasters, but that makes them more intimate and more interesting in some respects. Yeah, that is that is, that is super fascinating, and it's in some ways it's almost like the company is circling back a little bit to the the origin of like Justin.tv and you know streaming all different kinds of things. Um, yeah, so like that's that's that is an interesting parallel. So I think you alluded to. So it started as Justin.tv in like 2007. In 2011, they had noticed this kind of very active, highly engaged sub community of game like live stream gaming people, uh, and they were like, "Hey, let's focus on this." do this really well and then maybe we can we can come back and expand because at the time Justin TV was just kind of like free for all uh, everything and so they launched gaming specific version of Justin TV called Twitch uh, and that's kind of history um, and so it's interesting that you know it is it is branching back out and trying to look for adjacent communities that can derive value from this live uh, interactive platform. And I think I'm really fascinated by it as part of how you know the music industry, for say, is adapting to digital. Because um, we're even seeing like streaming services do not pay very much. Uh, to artists at all and uh, it's a huge problem if you're trying to support yourself and so producing this live content and cultivating a following uh, that will contribute to you creating music on a monthly basis is incredibly powerful to provide a stable base of uh, consumers of the content you're creating uh, supportive community and then allowing you to have a kind of a living income and be more experimental with your art that you're working on. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's great. And I, my understanding is that in like the, the music industry now, uh, the lion's share of the, of the economic value is captured from uh, concerts and other live performances. So, and there's not really a great analog for that for people who aren't physically co-located. So that makes a total, total sense that you all could be that, that channel. 
yeah, I think it's good. How it's going to evolve is, is going to be really cool. And like it, it dovetails with the, the reverse of where I was, you know, taking digital signals and trying to adapt them to understand real life. And now we're taking things that were previously constrained to real life interactions and making as close an analog as we can in a digital space. Got it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also curious to know how, you know, how you and your team work at Twitch. Like uh, how, how many folks are on it? Are you embedded in other teams, projects? Are you all working together? Like how, how, does, how does data science at Twitch work? Yeah, so Twitch science is centralized right now. Um, we're a team of 12, actually 13 people as of last week. Um, and we're growing uh, significantly, uh, if, any, if anybody out there is interested in applying. Um, but yeah, so we have a centralized team of what we would call like research scientists, like data scientists. And we align with various product teams and vertical areas, but we share results, collaborate, share techniques. Um, I think it's really powerful that you know we get to uh, operate independently as Twitch Science and have our own kind of longer term projects. And then at the same time, we get hands-on like product decision-making data insights for specific teams that we associate with. So uh, for me, that's working with all the product managers and technical product managers that are doing new chat features new uh, broadcaster social engagement. We just launched something called Channel Feed, which is like creating status posts um, on their kind of homepage. Uh, And we're launching actual Twitch friends, which I can say because it got leaked accidentally. uh, We were showing a different product. We were showing Channel Feed on a, uh, a demo and it was a staff account which had friends activated on the sidebar. Uh, and so it was just like right there on the stream. And, you know, we couldn't take it back after that. But that's going to be a really fascinating thing that we're doing in the next few weeks, uh, launching friends on Twitch. Um, but the other areas that people focus on are broadcaster success. So like what data products and tools can we provide to our broadcasters to help them better understand their audiences and uh, increase the engagement of their own communities um, and developer success, which is a more new area where we're really partnering with game developers to integrate their games with Twitch. So you can link your Twitch account within the game, uh, have achievements that you get in-game displayed on Twitch, have friends that you have on Twitch translate to people in the game, uh, and all kinds of interesting opportunities. 
Um, and so there's, yeah, there's just this really rich trove of unexplored territory that we're um, really excited to kind of be uh, getting involved with. Awesome. And is the like data engineering, is that also handled by the data science team or are there other folks that are getting the data from where it lives to to your and your team for analysis? Yeah, so we have a separate science and engineering team that's that's uh, nested under engineering more broadly. Um, we do work closely with them uh, to help, like, it's a collaborative process to determine the most efficient way to uh, ingest the metrics and then have, uh, you know, analytics systems that are highly performant and don't have downtime. Uh, so some of us are more engaged with that than others. You can certainly be in the data science team and not touch any, you know, Spark code if you want. Um, uh, and at the same time, you can be involved in that ETL process if you want to. Um, it's just very different and very nice, actually, coming from, you know, being a really early person at Human, I, I was data science, science engineering, and analytics, like all, I was everything. Uh, so I was doing all the metrics to spec, the implementation on the mobile clients. So I had to do some actual like mobile client code and then all of the ingestion and collection processes and dashboarding and algorithms and everything. It was rough. And so now, like theoretically, someone on your team could spend pretty close to 100% of their time on actual data science and, and not really touch the, the ETL or the data plumbing if it's not something that they're focused on. Yeah, That's yeah, awesome. for sure. And like, I think the biggest... I mean, the coolest thing about about Twitch Science, I think, is how influential our org is within Twitch. It's 13 people, but we're they almost in. If there is a room where a decision is being made, somebody from Science is in that room uh, because our culture really values. Uh, the data and rigor and uh, like you know we don't we don't make every decision purely on data there's some intuition that goes into less well-known areas but people respect whatever opinion science has on it and will strongly consider it in making any call uh, in terms of new product direction and strategy. That, that's really great. Yeah, and I think both from the, the ability to focus and the, uh, the level of like influence and importance that it's given within the, the organization, I think that's definitely rare. Um, so yeah, it sounds like a really awesome place to do data science. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm relatively new, and so I'm, I'm benefiting from a lot of work put in by 
Drew Harry and Brad Schumich, who are kind of my co-leaders in, in Twitch science and predate me. But really, I think I've seen semi-large organizations where data science can kind of be, uh, almost be perceived as like downers, you know, like telling people that, oh, that's not really going to work because of this and this, this. And we've done a really good job of being solutions people. Like, okay, you know, maybe exactly what you propose won't work. Like, let's figure out what is going to be the most effective use of engineering time. Like, what what will move this product team's numbers? Uh, and can we make really intelligent resource decisions? Uh, and you know, save you time and headache and be integral partners in this product development. Uh, and, and so that's, that's kind of how this influence has been cultivated and maintained within the organization. That's great. You, you mentioned Spark earlier. Uh, I'm curious to hear like what what makes up the 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 stack that the science team relies on? So primarily, what the science team will interface with is Redshift. Um, so there's an ETL process where there are metrics coming in from twelve different platforms where Twitch has applications, um, and. Uh, we do some batch processing, some ETL, and we are piping it into tables in Redshift. Um, and uh, a lot of it's built on, well, everything's built on uh, AWS, obviously, uh, because Amazon bought Twitch and we get pretty sweet, pretty sweet deals on AWS, AKA free. Um, that sounds nice. But yeah, um, but uh yeah, for the most part, as a as a data scientist, you're really, uh, I'm just amazed. I mean, even in, in the last like five years, how how efficient uh, you can query against massive massive data sets in Redshift, um, and so. Uh, there are a couple of different ways you can interact with it. Um, we have kind of a SQL visualization front end uh, where you can query against Redshift kind of with a SQL-like syntax uh, and create charts and reports and share them around. Um, and is that something you, you all built internally or using a third-party tool? No, that? that's uh, Mode Analytics. Oh, okay, um, cool. We use Mode and, too, it's great. Yeah, and like, I really, I really like Mode in terms of it's, it's really good at, at what it does. It doesn't try and do too much. It doesn't try and do everything. And then we work really closely with them on feature development, uh, which is cool as well. Like uh, they're rolling out this uh, Python integration um, where you can kind of write pandas code in order to bring in data from uh, outside like data sources that aren't directly connected to mode and kind of do joins. Um, and so we've been prototyping that with them. Uh, and it's, it's a cool relationship to have. Uh, 
and yeah, if, if you have, if you size your Redshift cluster large enough, you can do a lot of things really quickly that, you know, would seem inconceivable, you know, a few years ago. And how much data do you have in your Redshift cluster? Uh, it's probably on the order of almost 100 terabytes. Um, but it's, it's kind of segmented by uh, different metric areas. So we have a few clusters spun up to analyze metrics from different uh, data pipelines. Um, there's kind of more quality of service type metrics, which are, you know, server generated metrics and like heartbeats from the video player uh, that's talking about kind of whether or not there was buffering or we dropped frames. Like there's billions of events coming in, you know, on an hourly basis. Uh, and so, yeah, the scale is, I try not to think about it too often. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it probably make, could make somebody's head hurt. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, billions of events per hour. Uh, you said it's coming from 12 different platforms, uh, at least where, where Twitch runs. And we're, is, to your knowledge, is all that ETL code or scripts built in-house or are any third-party tools used to get all that data into Redshift? Yeah, so the ETL is in-house. Um, and the most recent stuff, I think there's probably some legacy uh, scripts that I'm not familiar with. The most recent stuff, you know, is Spark Streaming. Um, and for some of my recommendation systems, I'm using GraphX and MLib. Um, and I mean, I, I, I really like Spark and hopefully it it continues to be uh, as strong of a community and evolving. Um, but it's been it's been really uh, really amazing to see the progress that's made in the last two years. That yeah, it seems it seems like there's a, a lot of weight behind it, and it's it's evolving really fast, which is cool. Uh, are there any are there any data sources that are important for you and your team that are not directly generated by your application? Like I don't know if you're doing any advertising or third party payment processing or using third-party email service providers or anything like that that is also something you, you loop into your team's uh, Redshift instance? Yeah, so all of those things. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, so there are a lot of third-party applications that plug in through APIs to Twitch, and we have agreements with a lot of them to report uh, metrics back. Um, we do have our payment system, which is Amazon, so it's kind of first party uh, and advertising I know that we have uh, I haven't dealt with our advertising data um, I know but our email um, we it's a hybrid internal external system uh, but creates tracking events that end up in our regular analytics clusters. And how big is the 
I think you called it the engineering and science team that's responsible for moving all that data around and I assume transforming it and normalizing it. How big is that team? So science engineering is six people at the moment. And so they, they do the ETL. They also build kind of internal tools for us to uh, introduce new metrics to the pipeline uh, without bugging them about it. Uh, you know, I think like the best programmers are lazy programmers. Um, yeah. And so like, they, they create systems so that we can like self-service, uh, create schemas um, and ingest new data into the cluster. Um, and yeah, they're real rock stars at that for sure. Interesting. And then if you thinking about, I'm sure you've got a lot of different things on your roadmap. Uh, if you could choose one question and you know, you've got a magic wand and you can instantly answer that question uh, right now, what would it be? I think it would have to be what, what is the key user pathway to go from a casual, like logged out user that just lands on Twitch, you know, maybe repeat viewer first time, but converting them into somebody that actively chats and follows and subscribes to different broadcasters. There's a, a very bimodal distribution where we have extremely highly engaged core users and we have a lot of like transient passively interested and so like how to migrate people across that user kind of that user story that user flow um like i'm i'm intently focused on that and trying to tease out a signal from the noise um and uh, have some theories, but uh, n- nothing nothing I would consider concrete yet. Got it. And, and how do you think you'd, what would you do with that once you, once you, let's say you got a full understanding of it? Well, I think that, you know, if we have uh, an understanding of the pathways, we can nudge uh, these passive users or incentivize them to take some of the preliminary actions along this pathway. Um, and we, we try not to, we don't like, I don't know what the right term for this. We don't force people to log in to do almost anything except for chat, uh, because that kind of requires, uh, a username, but uh, we don't want to be kind of draconian about like making people create logins. We want them to see a feature that they want to use uh, that's value add for them enough for them to want to create a login um, and to come back and engage with the site. Uh, And so exactly whether or not we have those features already and we're just not uh, getting them in front of people uh, at the right times or if we need some new way to engage those passive users like as a kind of a gateway um, we'll see I mean that's an open question for us 
Makes sense. There's actually one other question on tools that I, I forgot to ask you, but I'm interested to know. Uh, is there anything uh, that right now you and, and your team are, are rolling your own for, that's something that you know you or maybe another team has built out internal tools for that you wish you could um, you know, outsource or buy a third-party tool or service to to replace that part of the stack. For the things that we do use internal tools for, they're very good. Um, I think the the one area that we don't have coverage in that we would I would like coverage is more more of a real-time system um, because ultimately we're still getting like batches of data loaded in and so there's some time delay and so uh, we're thinking about building a system internally that does you know very top level like stream processing and aggregation so that we can monitor things in real time uh, and we do this for like uh, server metrics and for video performance and, and specific things, but it would be great to have it extended to every metric so that we could know that, you know, uh, chat emoticons are broken if that ever happened or something like that. Um, and it's it's not clear whether or not there a third party solution would be best for that or something that we do ourselves. Um, so yeah, that's kind of on our on our roadmap, but a question mark. Got it. Okay, that's great. And the the reverse of my last question is: there anything that you're using a third party tool for or service, and you think it's likely that you'll bring that in house for one reason or another in the not too distant future? It's essentially something where we have an analogous thing that we're running in-house and that's working pretty well. Uh, and it's just a matter of making sure, like moving everybody in the organization off of any dependency to the old systems uh, and, and moving them onto our internal ones. And so that includes like certain data products that are like driving dashboards surface to broadcasters, like our marketing team uh, and promotions probably, you know, the less technical areas of the company um, have some reliance on a legacy metrics tracking system. Um, but we, we have a roadmap to to replace it with an internal system. And part of that roadmap is to make our data more up-to-date uh, or more lower latency in our ETL process. Got it. And what, what is the latency in your ETL process? I know you mentioned it's batch processing, but how, how frequently do those batches happen? Right now, it's every two to three hours. Um, and uh, for certain we call, you know, tier one metrics, it's uh, down among the half hour range. But uh, yeah, it, it can always be better. And 
uh, I think it's, it's sort of reasonable to not talk about the, the one specific tool you have in mind that you're planning on replacing with the internal uh, solution. But, but generally, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of vendors who see a company like Twitch and would be super interested in you know, them, having them as a customer. The, like, what, what are some of the reasons that thing, I guess what's most commonly the reason why you choose to, to go in-house versus a third-party vendor? Is it just that not many people can deal with your scale? Do you need a, real, a ton of customization ability? Like why, why do, it's, and it seems like you do a lot of things in-house. Why, why is that? It's scale. Um, and I think it, like, part of it is that we have the, because of the video team, so, like, the amazing thing about Twitch is the, uh, the amount of optimization and customization of our video delivery systems. And as part of that, this very metrics and tracking-driven uh, culture where we had internal uh, expertise because of building out this world-class video streaming platform. And so I think that that in part is why it was easier for us to do it in-house because we already had those uh, experts. We didn't have to necessarily build a team from scratch. Um, and then the scale, you know, uh, I feel like we've, we've talked to a few um, like data visualization vendors or uh, even like ETL type vendors and you start talking about the size of the the event streams and they're they kind of get pale very quickly I buy that yeah it's a lot of data yeah. <laughs> um, cool All right, that makes sense uh, I know you mentioned uh, that that you're hiring and the team is growing now. Where uh, if someone's listening to this and they're interested in finding out more and applying, where where should they go? Yeah, we have our own site, science.twitch.tv, um, and that has bios of all the people on the science team. Has we produce a fair amount of like blog posts and uh, other reports uh, that we surface on there. Uh, that are interesting in their own right, so you should check it out. Um, but you can apply through uh, that site, and uh, you can. I would give my Twitter, but it's it's hard to. Uh, it's a lot of letters, but it's linked from science.twitch.tv, so uh, I'm sure people can find it. Okay, cool. And I'm sure if they just uh, Google for Ian Murray Twitch Twitter, uh, that it'll probably pop up too. Yeah, I'm like pretty close to the top. If you just even do Ian Murray, there's like a oh, prime, nice. there's a a minister of parliament in the UK and a professional soccer player that kind of screw up my results. But uh, other than that, I'm I'm moving up in the world. That's you should be proud of that. I'm uh, I'm still doing battle with uh, Monica Lewinsky's lawyer was named Jake Stein. Oh, uh, yeah. So he was pretty famous for a while. And there's also some like Australian decathlete who consistently keeps winning races. Well, so I mean, that's not so bad. Yeah, I mean, I'm... a bar, a girl looks you up, he's like, ooh, decathlete. Exactly. Awesome. I, uh, I haven't had that happen to me yet. I think people meet me, and they're like, well, this guy is obviously not the athlete. Uh, 
Well, um, I mean, you just got to work on your Australian accent, clearly. That's true. I'll watch. I'll watch Crocodile Dundee, and then I'll. It'll all fall into place. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Uh, is there anything else outside? So, uh, science.twitch.tv, I think everyone should check that out. I'm definitely going to take a look. Is there anything else that you think people ought to know about or read about, or even if it's not necessarily connected to, to you and Twitch, anything that you would want to plug? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I think uh, people should look, look at all the, the... We have a bunch of interesting members of the team, with a bunch of different backgrounds. And so uh, the bios and the links from the bios, like, uh, you know, I'm, I may be like one of the less interesting people on the Twitch science team. Uh, so I, I encourage people to, to scroll down even past our blog posts and, and check out the other team members. Um, and I think that's like the biggest selling point of Twitch science in terms of hiring people is just like the great team that we have is there anybody on the team who knows as much about osmosis as you uh the sad thing is there might be somebody that does know more than i do <laughs> like the fact that i did it for a startup company does not mean i know the most about it like we have a lot of scientists uh, i mean i'm pretty i'm pretty confident about osmosis one of the people we just brought on was is a particle physicist who's doing a postdoc at Fermilab and uh, Harvard uh, in like neutrino physics. And uh, yeah, she's got the coolest dissertation, I think, so far. Yeah, she, she sounds like she's probably not a dummy. I, uh, I, I would buy nope. <laughs> Uh Yeah, it definitely sounds like a super interesting group. And uh, I think you're plenty interesting, but uh, I'm going to check out some of the other folks too. Um, cool. Was there, was there anything that I didn't ask that you think I, I probably should have or something that would be really interesting to talk about that we didn't cover? I think one of the, one of the things that varies by uh, companies is kind of like how data science interacts uh, with the product organization and like who you consider your customers um, and whether or not data scientists consider like the audiences how they consider the audiences that they're producing uh, data and reports for. Um, it's just something that's been really fascinating for me coming from a startup to what is now a reasonably large organization, um, Twitch just past 500 employees. Uh, it's, yeah, the organization of data science teams and actually there's a we did a p blog post about like how to build a world-class data science team um and i i think it's it's really interesting and uh maybe that's me geeking out about it but um it's definitely something that's overlooked in a lot of cases like positioning data science within an organization and really articulating areas you can add value and where you know your efforts may be less uh impactful and things that you should overlook and it may be hard to to boil it down to to one or two things but uh what do you think is like the most important thing but like let's say i'm starting a data science team in my my company right now what what's like the one thing i absolutely should or shouldn't do with that team I think that 
the first person you bring on has to have a very strong, like, centered uh, ability to advocate for their opinions. Um, and one of the big things is, like, if you're in a decision-making role or you're the CEO, like, data science has to be able to uh, produce negative results. Like, if if we can't, like, produce high-quality data science that maybe contradicts some conventional wisdom uh, because, you know, somebody's going to get mad, throw a chair, or just ignore it. Like, there's no point in having a data science team. So uh, maybe that's my personal experience, but that's, like, incredibly important. Like, integrity in uh, being open to what the data tells you. Yeah, we refer to that as like intellectual honesty. Uh, yes, um, exactly. But yeah, I think because if you don't have that, then the data science team could not exist and literally nothing would be different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah I think that that's important. That, that makes sense. Uh, cool. Well, Ian, this has been extremely interesting. Uh, I really appreciate it and uh, hopefully look forward to, to chat again soon. Yeah, thanks for taking the time and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Statistically Interesting. This podcast is produced by me and Ryan Williams at RJ Metrics HQ, which is right across the street from City Hall in sunny Philadelphia. If you like what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.